0: Listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. Send in your question or comment. To participate in the show, you can text or call 757 774 8482. Or to email the show, you can go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E R I C D A W.com. Click the contact link and send your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. The show is the Red Files Podcast. My name is Eric Dom, a longtime guitar builder and repairman, and I have no co host this morning. I'm doing a solo show because I want to, and because that's just how it's going today. I've had a rough couple weeks. I gotta tell you, I mean, I don't want to complain, and you don't really want to hear it, but just quickly, I'll tell you. I, I had, so since we last spoke, I had COVID. And uh, haven't been able to get much work done in the shop. I've just been taking it easy, trying to get my body well again. And it was kind of rough, like a, you know, <clears throat> 7 to 10-day illness. I'm better now, but, you know, these the like the lingering effects. I'll probably have a cough for weeks. What are you going to do? That's life. So I just got over COVID, and uh, in the last two weeks, I've had two... Friends of mine pass away, too. I, uh, it's upsetting. It's been rough. Uh, y- you know, And anyway, I want to dedicate this show to my two buddies. Chris Tapp, who, gosh, Chris was a great guy, and I'm sad to lose him. He was my age, uh, 47. 47. We went to school together, and Chris, he's an interesting guy. You know, you may have even heard of Chris. Uh, He uh, became a little bit famous. (laughs) You know, all these people listen to the crime podcasts and whatnot. But he was all over those, and on, like, Dateline and whatever, because in the 90s, Chris was accused of a crime and sentenced for it and he he didn't do it he was innocent and that's not my opinion that's a fact he was innocent and he was eventually cleared through DNA evidence and released and exonerated and sued the state of Idaho It got millions of dollars in wrongful imprisonment and compensation so he you know his name was cleared before he passed away but he spent 20 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit interesting guy been through a lot interesting life had a had a tough go for a while, and uh always had a good attitude about it. I looked up to chris a lot he he was just a genuine guy, very kind and uh you know life really dealt him a bad hand, and he dealt with it so well. i thought, good guy, I'll miss Chris, my buddy Chris tap. And then my friend Rick passed away. Rick Trollson, uh, he ran a studio here in town, a recording studio, and I'd known Rick since the 90s. He's older than me. He's maybe 30 years older than me. And, uh, just a great old guy, just solid, genuine guy. He, he was one of these old guys that, uh, just had stories for days. Like you could, I loved hanging out with Rick because I oftentimes I'd go over there in the mornings and we would drink coffee and just play guitars a little bit. And You know, he's, he's the only guy who I would do pick up and drop off for on guitar work. So I would pick up guitars sometimes and, and then fix them, then drop them back off to him because he had a hard time getting around, you know, but, uh, just a great guy. Man, he had stories. He told me a story once. So he was always in a hot band, right, back in the day. He played in bands. Um, he was from the Midwest. He was, I can't remember, North Dakota or South Dakota. I think North Dakota. He was from that area and was in bands uh, all throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s. He was in a great band in the 60s, and they um, had this promoter who would book them for different shows, and he told me this guy was from Greece, and uh, he was one of these guys who, he was a concert promoter, but also, like, in Rick's opinion, might have also been involved in, like, some mafia stuff, or, like, he was a little bit shady, you know? Uh, Anyway, this, this concert promoter called up Rick and said, Rick, I've got a great gig for you guys. A great gig. And Rick said, great, let's do it. He said I've I've booked you opening up on a string of dates for the Zombies. Rick said, "Wow, man, the Zombies, I mean they were a hit band late 60s, you know, time of the season, right?" Rick was excited. "Great, man, we're going to play with the Zombies. Well, the Zombies are from England, right?" So he goes to meet the Zombies and they go to play their gigs. And these guys show up, and they introduce themselves. Howdy, y'all. Howdy, y'all. We're the zombies. They had a southern accent, and Rick is going, Uh, something doesn't add up here. This, This can't... These aren't the zombies. Turns out they weren't. It was a band pretending to be the zombies. I guess the zombies had their hits and then immediately broke up and so didn't tour, and this concert promoter took advantage of that and put together a band, or hired a band, to pretend to be the Zombies. So Rick opened up for the Fake Zombies on a string of dates in the Midwest, and, uh, (laughs) you know, these guys were from, like, Texas, and they were great. He said they played all the Zombies' hits, and they played them really well, and they were really good, but they weren't the Zombies. Anyway, about a year later, Rick's watching TV, and there's a new band. They bring out this new band. Hey, here's this little old band from Texas, ZZ Top. And Rick looks at the TV, and he goes, Hey, I know those guys. That's the fake zombies. He had opened up for, I think it was only two of the members, but he had opened up for ZZ Top pretending to be the zombies before they were ZZ Top. Pretty wild, man. Uh, pretty good story, Rick. Anyway, Rick Trollson, I'm going to miss him. Great guy. Uh, great studio engineer. Great musician. He could play anything. I mean, he'd, he played steel and guitar and bass and key keyboard. He was great on the B3. Good singer. Rick was a great guy. I'll miss you, Rick. And I'll miss you, Chris, so this episode's dedicated to my two buddies that I lost this last couple of weeks. That's life, man. Life is rough. Life is like that. But, you know, I had gone over and I had spent about three hours with, with Rick just before I got sick. And uh, he was telling me um about his health, and I knew, I mean, he just, his health was in bad shape. I didn't know how close we were to the end but I'm so grateful that I went over there and spent 3 hours with him and drank coffee and helped him set up his upright bass and we just talked about life and music and one of the things he said to me is uh you know Eric despite my health and whatever and you know he he had cancer and he had heart failure and he said Eric don't worry about me I'm not afraid of death I never have been and uh, you know, that's pretty admirable. That's pretty cool. He he took it head on and was not afraid. I'll miss you, Rick. Anyhow, that's been my two weeks. But that's not why you listen to the show. You you're here for the uh the guitar talk, right? I have questions to read from listeners. So let's dig right in. Mm-hmm, We do. We get stacks and stacks of emails. Wait, do emails stack up? Sure, they do. If they, if you print them out like I do, they do. I've got them printed out in my uh, aniline dye stained fingers. Hi, Eric. I wind a few pickups and offer them for sale to my repair customers as a boutique alternative to the big makers. I've been very happy with the results so far, and so have the players that have bought them. I have a problem with my latest batch. I ordered half a dozen Telecaster pickup bottom plates, and to my dismay, they are not tapped. They have holes in them, but no threads. Hmm. Is there an easy way to tap those with out? Is there an easy way to tap those out with threads? I've not had to tap threads before. What tools do I need to do it? Thanks, Jerry, in North Carolina. All right. Well, thanks, Jerry. Yeah, I can see how uh, that would be frustrating. Especially if you've never done that before. If you've never tapped out those elevator plates, they call it an elevator plate. <clears throat> uh, I've got an easy solution for you though. You really don't need anything for specialty tools. Fender makes a great screw that is self tapping, that's the right threads. All you have to do, <clears throat> I typically put like a little drop of oil on the, uh, on the tip of the screw and then force it through and it'll it'll thread it'll tap the threads as it goes through uh it's fender part number 099 492 5000 it's fender pickup and selector switch mounting screws uh there's you can get a set of 12 they send them they sell them in sets of 12 i think it's only f- 5 bucks you can get them you know from any of the main <clears throat> suppliers that sell fender gear. Uh, if you can find just a self-tapping screw, you could might be, you might even be able to get it cheaper if you don't buy the fender brand, but you've got to get the right screw. It's 6 32, that's the thread you want. Uh, the screws themselves are 5 8 inch long. Phillips pan head screw. So uh, but 632. 6 32 is the thread that you're gonna want to uh, tap those with but yeah self tapping screws they're called fender pickup and selector switch mounting screws and again that part number zero nine nine four nine two five thousand easy to find cheap easy solution and uh that'll that'll fix you up man very good thank you jerry next question hi eric I continue to enjoy the podcast, and it's great to see you flourishing. Oh, well, thanks. I don't know how much flourishing I'm doing, but thank you. I had a technical question. I want to put an access notch in a pickguard for a vintage fender-style neck adjustment rod at the heel. Is there a clean and easy way to do this? As always, my thanks from E. James Guitar Works. All right. Well, thanks, buddy. Let me clear my throat and take a sip of apex coffee here my my voice is still suffering just a bit like i say i just got over covid man it was rough sip my coffee Mm Hmm. apex coffee our sponsor i'm telling you it's good it's so good god i live for this coffee it's so good anyhow where were we what were we doing oh yeah uh E. James Guitarworks wants to know, how do you put that access notch in a pit guard for truss rod access on a Fender pit guard? Uh, you know, the easiest way to do that, and I, I've found, the easiest way to do that is with a Dremel. I use a little sanding drum, you know, it's just a tiny little sanding drum on a Dremel, and just notch that thing out. Uh, I would look at pictures or look at an example of one that's already been cut so that you make it look right. And then before you do any cutting, maybe mark it with a Sharpie or a pen or something so that you know exactly where it goes, exactly how deep you want it to be. <clears throat> it shouldn't be too tough, but uh, you can do it slow. The slow way to do it by hand is with like a round file. But if you want to do it quick, you can use a Dremel. And just be careful. Those Dremels, you know, they have a tendency to want to, as soon as you put the sanding drum onto the surface, they have a tendency to want to move sideways from the force of the spinning. So be gentle, be careful, be steady. (laughs) You can do it. Very good. Thanks for the question. Next question. Hi, Eric. I was wondering if you've seen this video from David Collins on YouTube. He came up with an interesting idea. Using a sawzall with a diamond crowning file attached to it in order to crown frets with speed. It seems completely insane until you watch the video. He actually may be onto something with this. That's from Jim from Austin. I saw, I don't know if it was David Collins, I saw somebody, I think it was on Instagram, it might have been the same guy, who put a crowning file in a sawzall, you know, like a reciprocating saw, it goes. it goes back and forth, pushes the blade back and forth. So instead of a blade, he put a crowning file in there, and now you're speed crowning. Fritz, it is insane. But I tell you what, you know, I... Th- I don't want to sound like uh, I'm telling tales, but I had this idea back 20 years ago when I was having such shoulder problems. I've got permanent shoulder damage from crowning frets, guys, and from filing frets. I have to do uh, physical therapy exercises to keep my shoulder working properly because of all of the filing and sanding that I've done... It's just roasted my shoulder. So, <clears throat> if this saves your shoulder, I'm all for it. It looks scary. <laughs> I mean, anytime you, you're going to use power tools, the opportunity for disaster uh, is much higher than using hand tools, right? So, if you're going to do this, be real careful. Be real careful. It would be real easy to go too far. Too fast with something like this. But, uh, you know, I thought, I actually had, I actually thought of this idea 20 years ago and then dismissed it. Didn't even try it because I thought, oh, that's insane. That's insane. It's unprofessional and insane. But, hey, if it works, more power to you, right? Get it? Power tools, more power to you. Yeah. Anyhow. Thanks, Jim. Next question. Hi, Eric. Greetings from London town. How are you? I'm fine. Hope all is well. I have a lovely July 1953 Esquire, and I had a question about tuner rehab. Basically, just wondering how you go about rehabbing vintage tuners, and when it's worthwhile doing so. These are the original no-line Clusons, and while they still work, most of the time, I can tell a few are starting to slip or seem a bit gummed up. How do you go about getting them back in tip-top shape? And it is it ever too late to do so? Thanks. That's from Michael. Oh, I know this Michael. Michael S. I won't say his last name. I didn't know he moved to London, Michael. What are you doing in London? Uh, I I knew I know Michael from my Seattle days. He was a Seattle guy. Uh, Michael, I tell you what. So I've never. I don't think I've ever seen one that's too far gone. I don't think so. Uh, And I've seen them pretty bad. But if they're really rusted up, I'll soak them in a solution of... uh, There's a product called EvapoRust. Those old and tuners can get real rusty. So I soak them in EvapoRust and uh, get all that rust neutralized. And you can clean it off of there. <clears throat> and then, um, dry them out really well. If you need to, you can open up, you know, those, the, the, the back covers on those are just held on with tabs. You can take those, you bend those tabs and take the back off and inspect the gears and everything, the worm gear and the round gear. Make sure everything looks right. Make sure everything's tight. Uh, the trick with taking those covers off is I don't take them off unless I absolutely have to, because you only get to bend those tabs a couple times before they snap. So be careful there. If you don't have to take the backs off, I wouldn't. What I would do is soak them in evapo and then dry them thoroughly. And then there, you'll notice <clears throat> there's a little hole in the back of the tuner, in the shell of the tuner. And I will force a kind of a thicker, you know, grease into that hole while I'm turning the key. And that will grease the uh, gears. That's what I do. You can use like a lithium grease or any kind of like a, uh, you know, bearing grease. But that's what I do. Clean them up real well with evapo-rust and just a, a cloth. Or if they're really pitted and really rusty, you can go after them with a brass bristle brush. But, you know, you're going to be taking the the plating off if you do that. So you got to be careful there. Uh, and then pack them full of grease. I don't like to use a thin oil. You can, you can just drop, just a drop of like a thin oil in that hole. The problem I have with that is then the oil over the years will kind of seep out of the tuner and onto the headstock, and it will get in all of the lacquer cracks. It'll seep into the finish and into the wood, and it will darken. You'll just end up with these dark lines emanating from the tuners. And that's the oil getting into the uh, lacquer cracks. So I use a thicker paste grease to grease those. That way it won't seep into the wood. That's what I do. That's what I do. Nothing crazy special. And as long as they're working most of the time, man, just roll with it. They're, They're notorious for developing a little bit of play. But... That's the beauty of vintage guitars, you know? You just have to live with some of these quirks if you're going to live with the original parts. A trick if if your tuner has a little bit of play in it, you want to um when you're tuning, you'll go below the note, tune it detune the string a little bit, and then bring it back up. So you're always coming up to pitch, always bringing the tuner up to the right note, never down you bring it up to the right note and then you don't have to deal with fine tuning back and forth right just go lower and then bring it up if it has a little bit of play in it that's anyway that's a good way to tune anyhow because it uh uh if you've got <clears throat> the string you know the strings passing over bridge saddles and through the nut and under string trees and it's always good if you just are bringing up to pitch then it eliminates any weird, uh, you know, string hang-ups in nut slots and whatnot. Anyhow, thank you, Michael. Let's do another question here before we take a break. Hi, Eric. I have a question for your podcast. I have a 74. Dan Armstrong, London, with the sliding pickup. Great and unique guitar. A few years ago, I was playing at a gig, and about halfway through the action started getting higher and higher as the neck began to slightly separate from the body. Oh, geez. As you can imagine, it became unplayable pretty quickly with about a quarter-inch gap between the heel and the pocket. Despite being finished in epoxy resin, according to the Dan Armstrong website, the separation was pretty clean-looking. No adjacent cracks around the separation. I took it to a local luthier thinking, no big deal. Just needed the neck reglued. You can see from the picture I sent that the luthier really struggled with the reset and inflicted some collateral damage. He claimed it was nearly impossible to reset the neck, and the resulting rough seams were unavoidable. Holding the malpractice aside, the neck angle is fine and solid, but the seams are pretty ugly, in my opinion. I would like to cosmetically fix this, and I'm looking for advice. Can I carefully drop Phil? With cyanoacrylate or epoxy resin or something else, and then sand the seam with some folded fine grit paper. Will the CA or epoxy blend in with the existing finish, possibly making sanding unnecessary? I don't need it to look perfect, just better. Thanks. From Tim. All right, Tim. Yeah, okay. Well, I saw the pictures. Set neck guitar. The neck pulled out of the. Of the pocket and had to be glued back in, but now, the finish is pretty gnarly, around the seam. <clears throat> um, yeah, I it it's tough to tell from the pictures. It may, be pretty easy to touch that up, and it may not, depending on, you know, if there's, if that's kind of been sealed up, if it's been, uh, you know, if there's glue in the in, the finish around the seam looks like shattered glass okay and uh that might be easy to touch up if those cracks are open so what i would try is a thin ca glue because that's really going to flow it's really going to flow into the cracks um my favorite brand is glue boost glue boost thin ca glue <clears throat> I would try that and just let it, just a tiny little bead around that section and just see, just see if the, uh, if, if it flows into those cracks. And if it does, it should just about like, you know, it kind of cl- will not close up the cracks, but it'll fill the gaps and make all that shattered glass look, if not disappear, look way better. so keep working with that try the thin ca glue and then once it's dry then you should be able to sand and buff and uh, make it look pretty good that's what i would try that's what i would try and it should work that should work really well especially with that with that finish uh that should be a really good solution so give that a try Let me know how it goes, Tim. Thanks. We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back with more. Thank you. After these messages, we'll be right back. This episode of the Fret Files podcast is brought to you by Apex Coffee Roasters. Imagine always having fresh roasted coffee in your home. Now imagine you didn't even have to leave the house for it. A subscription with Apex Coffee Roasters makes all of this possible. You choose the plan that best suits your needs and they handle the rest. Their roaster will select a coffee option just for you and send it your way. Discounts are applied if you get a six month or a year long subscription. And shipping in included, if you're in the USA, great coffee every morning. Just cut a little bit easier. That's apexcoffeeroasters.com. And if you go there and use my promo code, you get an additional 10% off. That's PINUP, P-I-N-U-P. That's at apexcoffeeroasters.com. You know playersgearmusic.com is the go-to place for neck heating irons or neck presses We've been telling you about that for a long time. But you should really check out his effects pedals. Go to playersgearmusic.com. Rick over there makes custom guitar pedals, and he makes all kinds. They're so unique. Check them out. Uh, distortion pedals, boosts, fuzz pedals. And sometimes they're in really unique um, containers. Sometimes they're uh, painted wild. you got to check it out playersgearmusic.com. While you're there, look up the neck heating irons that he sells. It's the only place on earth that I'm aware of you can still buy one, and it's essential. It's essential in my shop. I use mine all the time. Playersgearmusic.com. Check it out. Solid sound book. My book. The book I wrote, guys. I worked for years researching this book. There's all kinds of schematics in here about single-coil pickup guitars. There's 23 schematics in here for wiring vintage and modern. Single coil, solid body guitars. You know what I'm talking about. Listen, there are some radical redesigns in here. This is from solidsoundbook.com by Eric Daw. For the first time, Eric Daw shares his essential solid-body guitar wiring schematics from the classics of the 50s and 60s to the more obscure and secretive circuits. He's designed and collected over the years. This is your go-to when no other circuit will do. Guys, it's affordable. It looks good. It's full of all kinds of information, even if you're not really the soldering type There's information in here that will help you understand what's going on with pickups, how they work, and all of the different mysteries about things like tone capacitors, pots and switches. I tell you what, you read this book and you'll understand more about your guitar than you did before. Go to solidsoundbook.com and order your copy today. Alright, more questions. Hi, Fret Files Podcast. What is your advice... On filing, nut slots. I want to put thicker gauge strings on. However, I can't find nut file sizes to exactly match the strings I want to use. Thanks. That's from Joe in Virginia. Hmm. Joe doesn't say what gauges he wants to use, but yeah, you want to make the uh, you want to widen, you want to make the the slots larger in the nut to accommodate larger strings. Uh, I'm surprised you can't find the uh, proper size. Uh, what's, what gauge are you using, Joe? It can't be that far out of uh, the ordinary. Um, let me just look. Let's go, let's go to, uh, we're going to go to Philadelphia Luthier Supply. It's PhiladelphiaLuthierTools.com. They sell sets of, they sell, well, okay, you can buy a set or you can buy single nut files they sell hosco brand hosco compact black guitar nut File, singles they're they're about 15 bucks a piece and let's look at the sizes they have so many how could you not find the right size they have 9 10 12 13 16 24 28 32 36 40 42 46 50 54 65 75 85 90 105 and 130, all the way up to base gauges there. Uh, That should work. I mean, you know, you'll notice, like, it goes 9, 10, 12, right? Where's 11? Well, in order to accommodate 11, you'll use the 12, right? So if there's a gap, like I'm seeing here, it goes from 13 to 16. Well, what if you want to use a 15-gauge string? You'll use a 16 file, right so um yeah it does it does skip over a few gauges but you just want to use the next closest size up is what you want to do and that <clears throat> that will get the job done yeah you should have no trouble you know if if you take that approach and if you go to a website like this Stumac will have something similar as well Stuart McDonald dot com or Philadelphia luthier supplies uh, and you can get fret uh, or excuse me you can get nut slotting files very easily there so check that out check it out thanks Joe righty. next question hi Eric thanks for all the great info and your well assembled podcast that's always something to look forward to what are your thoughts on Ron Ellis pickups I've heard of folks like Julian Lodge as well as Nashville Session guitarists raving about them. Supposedly, they are a vintage-correct reproduction of classic pickups. I can't see what possible edge they would have against your pickups as far as design, quality of components, or level of craftsmanship, yet they have a massive price tag. Any thoughts on the high-end and high-priced pickup market and the law of diminishing returns as far as tone is concerned? That's from Chris in Wichita, Kansas. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. I don't know. I haven't A-B'd my pickups against Ron Ellis pickups. In fact, I've never uh, played through a set of Ron Ellis pickups, so I can't really intelligently tell you how great they sound or how great they don't sound. I'm sure they're wonderful. I'm sure they're very high quality. I looked up his website. Uh, It looks like he makes great pickups. And I looked at the prices, and I thought, oh, that's not bad. Until I realized that was for one pickup. I thought I thought it was for a set, <clears throat> right? So, yeah, his pickups are, uh, I think, if I remember right, they were th- three and a quarter for a single pickup. That's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, especially considering you could probably f- buy an actual vintage pickup for not a whole lot more than that. Maybe not a 50s one, but, you know, maybe like a late 60s pickup i don't know uh i'm sure he uses top quality parts um the right wire the right magnet wire like enamel you know enamel coated wire and high quality american-made alnico magnets but uh i use the same stuff I use the same stuff, and my pickups are uh, one twenty, I think. Is that what I'm charging for pickups now? I can't even remember. I'd have to look at my own website. I think it's one ten or one twenty each. So, uh, are his pickups two hundred dollars better than my pickups? Uh, I don't know. That's up for you to decide. If you want to buy pickups from Ron Ellis, go ahead. If you want to buy pickups from me, I'm happy to make them for you. Um, <clears throat> but. This all this makes me want to do is raise my prices. <laughs> you know, it's an economic thing, right? Like he's I I I respect what he's doing. And I get it. He's setting a price point so that you know, he would rather he would rather sell two pickups and then make the same amount of money as if he sold five pickups, right? and i get that um because there you know it raising your prices that much will thin out a lot of buyers a lot of prospective buyers but you get more money so it probably is a wash if he lowered his prices he'd sell more pickups but would he make more money so it's just an economic decision and i did i raised my prices not that long ago but maybe i didn't raise it enough i don't know I ju- I just looked at my email and I noticed I got another another order <clears throat> for some pickups I got to wind today. So you know I don't sell a ton of pickups, but if I were if I were overwhelmed with orders, I would probably raise my prices a lot. But I don't really like I don't advertise outside of this podcast. I don't advertise my pickups. I don't have ads in, you know, guitar magazines or on other podcasts or on social media or whatever. In fact, to order my pickups, it's kind of a process. You have to go and um, you have to find the webpage and then you have to fill out a form. And there's no way to actually just buy them. I I get an email sent to me after you fill out the form and then I kind of decide if I'm... If I have time to make pickups, then I'll send you an invoice. So uh, there's a little bit of gatekeeping going on as far as my pickups go. But if I were overwhelmed with orders, that's the next step I would do would be to raise my prices because I'm too busy doing repairs and building guitars. I don't want to be just a pickup maker. In fact, I've often thought about just not offering pickups for sale anymore because it's just not really, I don't know, it's not the most lucrative thing. But see, now, now now I'm back to maybe I should just raise my prices. So if you want to order some pickups from me, maybe do it before I raise my prices because I'm really thinking about it now after that question. All right, thanks, Chris. Next question. Hi, Eric, I've been enjoying the podcast for some time, and I also purchased the Solid Sound book. All right. Which is a great resource, as well as having a bit of a retro vibe on the shelf. Having done setups and a bit of fret fettling on my available guitars, I decided to dive into the world of kit guitars. And my question is about finishing from Raw Wood. Having watched a ton of YouTube videos, maybe too many, I'm now slightly confused regarding the most appropriate stages from Raw Wood. To gloss finish. Everyone seems to do things like stain, filler, and sealing in a different order. I chose a thin line T-style for my build, and the two-piece ash body seems okay to go without paint. Not sure what that meant. I'd like to achieve a black back, a burgundy face with a nice glossy sheen. What do you advise for a suitable process? Do you grain fill prior to stain? At what point would you apply the sealer? Should I mask the binding and or scrape back to white? Without easy access to spray facilities, I'm planning lots of thin wipe-on lacquer coats and elbow grease for the final effect. I'd love your input so I can settle on the task. Cheers from across the pond from CJ. Well, CJ, finishing is pretty complicated and... You know, it's a bit like baking. It's a bit like baking a cake. You kind of have to follow a recipe if you don't know what you're doing. Once you really know what you're doing, you can experiment a little with your recipes, maybe come up with your own. But for the novice, I highly recommend following a set schedule of finishing techniques. Uh, There's a few books I'd recommend. You might even already have one of them. The Guitar Player Repair Guide. In the back, one of the last chapters is Applying Finishes. And it, it outlines a pretty basic finishing schedule, with step one being wood preparation, right? So you'll be sanding, fixing any dents or chips, <clears throat> smoothing the wood. You know, you usually sand to about, I don't know, 120 or 220 grit sandpaper. And uh, then after your wood prep, step two is stain applied to bare wood. This is how he's outlining it. Now, I do it a little differently. And as you've noticed, different guys do it differently. You can experiment and see what works best for you. But a lot of the differences, you see, it depends on the look you're trying to achieve. For example the vintage gibson cherry finishes over mahogany uh they they used a a cherry red pore filler right so that dark pore filler stain uh gets a certain look where if you were to if you were to stain and then pore fill it would be a different look right or if you were to pore fill and then just stain with red then that would be a slightly different look They actually used a cherry red pore filler. So it depends on the look you're trying to get. It can vary quite a bit, you know. Like if you're going for a super accurate Fender-style finish in the 60s, uh, those were almost always uh, had kind of a yellowish undercoat. So you would do like a transparent yellow uh, stain before you did anything else. So, it just depends on the look you're trying to achieve, but there are things that make sense for certain looks and for, uh, you know, the order of, there's a certain way, you know, the the order of things that you're going to do here. Anyhow, this book outlines step one, wood preparation, step two, applying stain, and that works in some cases. Again, it just depends on the final look you're going for. Step 3, wash coat. Before filler, a wash coat is just a thin <clears throat> coat that it it will raise the grain just a little bit and uh you know, it can have color in it or not, but a good wash coat is a uh, vinyl sealer. That's what I use. Uh, another good wash coat would be just a, a thin thinned down lacquer or uh, another good wash coat is shellac freshly mixed shellac works well step four filling the grain you have to fill the pores if you're using ash or mahogany other woods you don't have to uh, fill pores like alder and maple so it depends on the wood you're using step five sealer sealer is just you can think of it like a primer, right? A clear primer uh, to go under nitrocellulose lacquer. So you'll, <clears throat> you'll use sealer to seal in all the previous steps. And then uh, whether you've used some stain or color or uh, whatever you've got under the sealer, like a sunburst, then you can put the sealer on and then you can sand it smooth with the sealer so you're not sanding through the color if you're use if you're doing a solid color the sealer would typically be a primer a solid color white primer and then on top of that would be your color coats step six color coats this color coat can be anything from a solid you know opaque color or a clear color or it can be A two-step process like a candy, like candy apple red is two steps. You do a metallic, like a gold undercoat, and then you do a transparent red over that. So again, it just depends on the look you're going for. And then uh, the final coat after after color coats would be your clear top coat. And then, well, actually, one more final coat would be water sanding and buffing it out. So that's the that's the schedule that they come up with in Dan Erlewine's Guitar Player Repair Guide. And it gives a pretty good overview on products to use and techniques and the order of things, how to do it. But there's a couple more books that, if you really want to get into it, Uh, There's a book called Understanding Wood Finishing by Bob Flexner. It's easy to find. I'm looking here online. Looks like there's some used copies for as cheap as four or five bucks. It's a great book, and it goes into uh, all the different kinds of finishes, and it goes into all different techniques. There's another book here uh, that's mentioned... In this Dan Erlewine book, I just saw it. Let me see if I can find it really quick. There's a great... There's another great book. The Wood Finishing Book by Michael Dresdener. So that's another one. So a couple, couple options there for some reading up on uh, on how to do it. But a lot of it can be experimentation. So one thing you could do would be to just... Use a scrap piece of wood that's the same wood as your guitar body. Use a scrap piece and finish that. Try to make it look as good as possible. And experiment with your techniques and with the the order that you're going to do things. That's a good option. That'll help you. Learning curve. You want to shorten that learning curve. But I've been finishing guitars for over 10 years. And I tell you, I still feel like a beginner sometimes. Finishing is, it's definitely complex, and sometimes it gets out of your hands, you know. Like, you'll be, you'll go to spray your top coat, and all of a sudden it wants to fish eye. And you don't know why, but maybe it's because you just touched a guitar that had some kind of silicone polish on it, and then you go to paint in the paint booth and accidentally touch the, uh, the body before you spray it and got some silicone on the, uh, on the primer or whatever. So <clears throat> it's tricky, man. It's real tricky. And trying to keep, trying to keep the finish completely dust free, uh, in a dusty old shop, you know, it's tricky. I've got a dedicated paint booth with exhaust fans, explosion proof exhaust fan and with filters for air intake, but Even with all that, and with a proper tack cloth, it's still, it it can be tough to get a flawless finish. A flaw-free finish, dust-free finish. It's tough, man. It's hard to do. Good luck to, yeah. Next question. Hi, Eric. I'm purchasing a 60s Guild acoustic guitar that looks like it has Brazilian rosewood back and sides. The guitar has a few cracks on the front, back, and sides that I'm told were repaired some time ago. They were repaired. The private seller assures me that the guitar sounds outstanding and competes with his vintage Martins despite these repairs. I'm wondering if you could share your opinion and experience with the repairing and maintaining instruments that have Brazilian rosewood back and sides. Here's my questions. Question number one. I've read in forums that Brazilian rosewood is more prone to cracking than other tone woods. Based on your experience, do you believe this is true? Why or why not? All right, let's take these one at a time. Yeah! Brazilian rosewood, solid Brazilian rosewood back and side acoustic instruments can be a little more prone to cracking, and it's because Brazilian rosewood has a very pronounced grain. And when guitar backs and sides crack when solid wood guitars solid you know not solid body but <clears throat> the solid back and sides on an acoustic instrument when they crack they crack along the grain from shrinking and expanding uh so uh so woods with really pronounced grain tend to be a little more prone to cracking cuz you'll see the cracks will follow the grain so yes and it's because of the pronounced grain that Brazilian rosewood has. Question two. Is it possible to touch up the cracks in the back and side so that they're less noticeable? Does doing so devalue the instrument, or has the value already been reduced because of the cracks? If this guitar was on your bench, would you be for or against touching up any already repaired crack? Well, let's see. This is a guild, so it's surely... Uh, finished in nitrocellulose lacquer. So I would think touching up those cracks is possible. He sent me some pictures. They're, it looks, I mean, you know, the finish is definitely, it's very noticeable the, where the finish has cracked along with the, uh, the wood. The tricky part is a lot of times guys will repair those cracks with something like tight bond. And they get tight bond all along the cracked wood, but they also get tight bond into the cracked sections of finish, and it dries there, and there's kind of... It's almost impossible to touch that up once you've got that crack saturated with tight bond. Uh, So... I'd have to really look at the crack up close and see what the best uh, option would be. You know, there's always... You can always go nuclear on it and sand it down and then build the finish back up, but that's tough to make it look right, and it's going to devalue the instrument. So, if... uh, I mean, you could certainly just choose to leave those alone because the devaluation... Uh, is already there from it just being cracked, right? It's possible it could be touched up with some lacquer drop fill and melt in some new lacquer in with the old lacquer. That's the nice thing about lacquer is as when you drop fill, uh, new lacquer just kind of melts in, in with old lacquer and it'll blend. But if those cracks are saturated with tight bond, it'll never really look right. So that's what the trick is. Question three. Aside from CITES, are there any considerations that you would offer to someone purchasing a guitar made from Brazilian Rosewood? As always, thanks for the show and everything you do. That's from Randy in Alberta, Canada. <clears throat> yeah, CITES is a consideration. You know, if you plan on ever traveling with that guitar and crossing a border, or if you're going to ship that guitar across a border, you have to have proper documentation. Uh because of the Brazilian Rosewood and the Brazilian Rosewood ban. Um, Seeing that this is a guitar that predates the ban on Brazilian Rosewood, I I don't know 100%. I don't know, and it's partially because they keep changing it, but I don't know exactly the protocols for shipping or traveling with a guitar across a border that has Rosewood, Brazilian Rosewood. So you might want to look into that for yourself, Um, they keep changing it. They keep changing it. But uh, if you can definitively prove, like with serial number and receipt and everything, that it's a guitar that predates, I think it was 1967 they banned Brazilian Rosewood. So if you can definitively prove that that's pre-'67 guitar, then it shouldn't be a problem because that was made before the ban double check that. I I've heard horror stories for sure where guitars just get confiscated at borders, you know? Uh and it also it seems to depend on uh who's working that day uh and who's checking guitars, right? And and uh, these guys you know, the um the border patrol guys aren't guitar experts, right? So don't expect them to be able to date your guitar. <laughs> you need to get you need to prove it to them by uh, you providing the proper uh, uh, paperwork. That's what I would recommend. Anyhow, thanks, Randy. Uh, I don't think there's. Any other considerations other than that, other than to say I would, you know, make sure you humidify that guitar, keep it humidified? Randy lives up in Canada where it's certainly uh, very dry, especially in the winter. So, yeah, you want to make sure that you're humidifying so that you don't get more cracks. But that's, you know, with any acoustic guitar. Thanks, Randy. All right, last question. Dear Mr. Fretfiles, that's me, some people advise waiting a day or so before unboxing guitars after shipping, giving them a chance to settle. Is there any basis for this practice, or can one just cut open the container and start playing? Also, I have two guitars being shipped from places with relatively more humidity. What should I do to acclimatize the guitars to a new dry home in the Intermountain West. Thank you. That's from Thomas in Wyoming. Thanks, Tom. Uh, yeah, shipping guitars, a lot of people do recommend that you wait a day, you know, and let that box kind of acclimate to the temperature inside your house before you open it. I agree with that practice if it's cold outside, right? If it's below freezing outside and that box comes and it's been, you know, if that guitar's been sitting on an unheated UPS truck in, you know, 10-degree weather and you just rip that box open and it's 72 degrees in your house, then, yeah, that can be a shock to the instrument I've seen cases where a guy says, Man, I opened this, I opened the case and I just watched the finish crack. It just went and cracked right in front of my eyes. So, yeah, they can lacquer crack from the shock, the temperature shock. So if it's really cold outside, yeah. If it's relatively, you know, warm, if it's the same, temperature outside as it is inside or close to it i mean anything above you know 40 really i wouldn't worry too much about it i would i would just tear open the box man so only when it's really cold would i worry about that that's my opinion what was this other question what should i do to acclimatize the guitars to a new dry home in the intermountain west well you want to humidify and there's a couple ways to do that. You can just humidify the room where you keep your guitars with a, a room humidifier. I use one where, um, it's a wicking humidifier with a fan and you, it has two little one gallon tanks that you refill. You have to refill it about every two or three days. Uh, <clears throat> I think the brand I've got is Vornado. Something like that, but. You know, you can easily, I mean, I I got it on Amazon, you can easily find a room humidifier. Or the other way to do it is to uh, use a case humidifier, like a little sponge or something that you'll add water to and keep it in the case with the guitar. With acoustic instruments, it's helpful to have one that fits inside the sound hole, either being held in place by the sound hole or by the strings, and it'll just be suspended there. With a little sponge, and then you can add, it's, best to use distilled water but you can you can use tap water if if you're lazy (laughs) uh and uh you'll have to add uh some water to that sponge uh, about once a week you know so that's the two ways to do it you can humidify the guitar in the case or you can humidify the room that your guitars live in some people have built-in humidification systems with their furnace if that's you then lucky you, you don't really have to worry about this uh, as long as the humidity in your house is above about 45. If it gets below 40, that's too dry for guitars and they can crack, especially ex- on over extended periods of time. It, <clears throat> it does tend t- to be, uh, in my experience, I, I guess this isn't necessarily true in every house, but in my experience... There tends to be a little more humidity in the basement than in the top floor, right, if you have a basement. So I, you know, would recommend keeping your guitars in the basement if you have one. Uh, Just because you you tend to have a little higher humidity in the basement. Now, if you've got a giant wood-burning stove down there that's drying out the air, then that's not the case. But it just depends on your own circumstances. But definitely humidify guitars if you live in a dry climate and especially in the winter you know what happens is as we heat the air in our homes it also removes the humidity so your furnace or your wood-burning stove or whatever however you're heating your house forced air furnace uh, it's drying out the air so you'll end up with <clears throat> air that's just too dry for your acoustic instruments right now how do you know if your guitar is getting too dry? Well, feel the fret ends. The wood will shrink, right? But the frets don't. So that's what causes sharp fret ends is low humidity. So if, if the fret ends are getting sharp, if you've got, uh, you know, what looks like, look at, look, look at the, uh, the top of the instrument. If you're getting some warping in the top, if you've got sharp fret ends. It's just your humidity is not high enough. But you should know anyway. Get a little humidity meter. I think they call it a... uh. Gosh, what do they call it? Um. Oh, yes, a hy- hygrometer. H-Y-G-R-O. Hygrometer. You can get a little digital hygrometer to measure... To keep an eye on the humidity in your home, I don't know, for 10 bucks or less. Cheap, 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 cheap insurance. I'd way rather see you spend 10 bucks on a hygrometer and 50 bucks on a humidifier than to have to spend hundreds of dollars on instrument repair. And honestly, it's just not that fun fixing cracks in acoustic guitars. So trust me, I would much rather you uh, use some prevention rather than bring me repairs. Anyhow, that does it for this episode of the Fret Files Podcast. Thank you for participating. Thanks for listening. If you want to send in a question or comment, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and submit your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482 and leave a voicemail or you can text that number 757 757- 774 Seven seven four eight four eight two, 8482 and we'll use your question or comment as part of the show. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.